Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the Waco Massacre. To give you an idea of what we're in for today, the Waco Massacre on the Texan ranch of a religious cult in 1993 was the end result of a 50-day siege in which 76 men, women, and children lost their lives after federal officials set fire to an isolated compound. So yes, disclaimers and trigger warnings galore right here. This episode may not be for some of you, and I totally understand if you'd rather click away, and hopefully I'll see you again in the next one. I already know this one will be probably a little too explicit for YouTube, so I fully expect them to smite me, but I really don't care. I think this topic is interesting and tragic, and it really shows a lot that we need to still learn about the way police handle situations. So without further ado, let's jump into it, and we'll start with the history of the cult and what they were involved in, and we'll get into why I'd rather not call it a cult to even begin with, but some sources call it a cult. It's just a mess, so let's just get into it. Why did you come here? Because I heard there was something here that I wanted to listen to. David can explain this Bible better than anyone that I've ever met. I'm here because of the truth. What is the truth? Well, you have to find out yourself. It all starts with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. According to their site, Adventists not only acknowledge the call to be unique or set apart the world, but they place a lot of importance on the fourth commandment, one of honoring the Sabbath day, as you obviously can tell from the name. Their site reads, before the name Seventh-day Adventist was even a thought, a group of Protestant Christians began gathering for Bible studies and tent meetings in the early to mid 1800s. At that time in the United States, there was a religious climate of revival that later came to be known as the Second Great Awakening. While some took this newfound religious fervor to the extreme, others were reading the Bible for themselves again, rather than just listening to a sermon each weekend. One preacher named William Miller was also fervently studying scripture and was spending time in the prophecies in Daniel and the Revelation. He became convinced that the second coming of Jesus, which at the time many thought to be figurative, would be literal. His study on these prophecies continued and he gained a substantial group of followers called Millerites. The more they learned about these prophecies and the idea of a literal second coming, the more they began to think in literal predictive terms. Eventually it was determined by the Millerites that Jesus would return to earth on October 22nd, 1844. He didn't. I find it interesting that they'd include this actually, considering that we're about to dive into another group of followers that branched off of them. But seriously, I've got nothing wrong with anyone who believes in honoring the Sabbath, taking a day off of the week for their religious belief. I struggled to take days off in general and my mental health suffers from it. So taking time away to worship God is fine in my book if that's what you're into. That's not the problem I have with them. It's the cult that branched off from them that became dangerous, known as the Branch Davidian. They were founded in order to continue the work of Victor Hautef, who lived from 1885 to 1955, a man set on reforming the SDA church. He settled in Waco, Texas in 1935 with his followers, preparing for what they believed was the imminent return of Jesus, claiming that Adventists abandoned this task in favor of worldly pursuits. The community in Waco became self-sustaining and continued even after Hotef died in 1955. 
However, his death came the splintering of the movement into several factions. Hotef's wife, Florence, disbanded her following and the land she sold was taken over by Ben Rodin. The area called Mount Carmel saw the establishment of the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. Ben called his members to a purer life and promised that Christ would return soon after the members reached a state of moral maturity. When Rodin died in 1978, members were torn between allegiance to his wife, Lois, and his son, George. Lois found an ally in a young convert, Vernon Howell, but her death in 1986 left George in control. Within a year, however, Howell had asserted his leadership and became the head of the Mount Carmel community. Howell moved quickly to assert his spiritual authority, and one of his first acts was the adoption of a new name, David Koresh. His name suggested that he was a spiritual heir of the biblical King David, and that he, like Koresh, Hebrews for Cyrus, the ancient Persian king, was a messianic figure, though not the Messiah Jesus. Cyrus is the only non-Jew to whom the title Messiah or anointed one is given in scripture. Koresh exercised his new authority by taking several spiritual wives from among the group's unmarried members. And in 1989, he asserted that he was the perfect male for all female members and confided to the Davidians his intention to create a new lineage of children for who he believed would eventually rule the world. Koresh's interpretation of the Bible rested largely on identifying himself with the lamb mentioned in Revelation 5. Traditionally, the lamb is identified with Jesus, but Koresh distinguished between them, suggesting that the lamb's role was to loose the seven seals and to interpret the scroll mentioned in Revelation 5.2, thereby bringing forth the end time revelation of Christ. David Koresh played a huge role in the Waco massacre, but we will get back to him in just a little bit. But I think this history is important for us to see just how quickly things can spiral out of control. After all, this group was originally part of the Adventist movements, a church that places a heavy importance on the Sabbath. But all it took was the founder's wife to give up Mount Carmel and it fell into the hands of a man who put conditions on Jesus's return. And then that man's son was willing to do what he had to in order to gain control of the group. That's not to say all churches are just a few steps away from becoming cult-like, but it's disturbing and interesting how quickly this one became exactly that. Once David Koresh stepped into the role of leader, things started to go south quickly. There's been some speculation that around the same time he claimed the gift of prophecy, he was also sleeping with Lois Roden, the widow of Ben Roden, who was then in her late 60s. George Roden, Ben's son, and David had an ongoing power struggle at Waco, and by struggle, well, we're talking attempted murder charges here. According to PBS, for a short time, Koresh retreated with his followers to Eastern Texas. But in late 1987, he returned to Mount Carmel in camouflage with seven male followers armed with five 223 caliber semi-automatic assault rifles, two 22 caliber rifles, two 12 gauge shotguns, and nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. During the gunfight, Roden was shot in the chest and hands. He and his followers went on trial for attempted murder. The seven were acquitted and a mistrial was declared in Koresh's case. Koresh told the jury he and his men went to Mount Carmel to find evidence of corpse abuse by Rodin and their shots were aimed at a tree. This was the time that David officially changed his name from Vernon Wayne Howell to David Koresh. And perhaps in his willingness to do anything to keep power, David went from being a prophet to claiming he was God's Messiah and his chosen one. Former followers said women had to wear long blouses and had no makeup or jewelry could be worn. They said Koresh would tell them where to sleep and what food they could eat. Sugar, processed flour, and dairy products were forbidden. 
He taught that we should not eat any dairy products, Buns said. His reasoning was, well, dairy products are made from milk, which is baby food. Milk is what you drink when you're a baby and we're adults now. Sheila Martin, who moved to the compound with her husband and five children in 1988 said, it was fun as long as we were being obedient. Fun for her perhaps, but other former Davidian members said that there as children, they remember being raised in fear and that being disciplined as a child was a 24 seven thing. Even looking back, some parents like Dana Okamoto said they felt like the most evil person in the world to have to beat their children, but they did it anyway because it was what God wanted and needed from them. Former members said Koresh would separate families from each other. Bruce Perry told ABC News that if Koresh thought a mother and a child had a tighter bond between him and the child, then Koresh would tell his parent, you haven't been disciplining them adequately, so I'm going to have this mother raise your kids. Aside from the beatings and separating families, Koresh also encouraged people, even married couples, to be celibate basically so he could have the women to himself. But it wasn't just women. Allegations with former followers say Koresh pursued young women and daughters to cult members, teenagers, and disturbingly, even younger. Koresh's youngest bride was reportedly 10 years old, and she later testified that Koresh molested her at a hotel. This place was, well, simply put, a horrible cult and exactly what she would think. The stereotypical God complex leader shouting that he's Messiah while using it as an excuse to get away with pedophilia. Followers blindly putting their faith in this man, sometimes out of intimidation and fear. We've seen this before. In short, this man was a monster. And I don't know much about his home life other than that he was teased as a child. He had a young single mother, was primarily raised by his grandparents and he dropped out of high school. Everyone has their struggles, but it's what you make of them that determines what kind of person you'll become. Koresh may have had the worst childhood in the world for all I care, but there's no excuse to become a pedophile. And I've got no sympathy for that kind of person, period. That said, I do have sympathy for his victims and the people that were part of that community. Even though the media at the time portrayed this tragedy of a cult full of crazy people that sort of brought the Waco massacre on themselves, I don't wanna do that today. I think it's important to look at the situation with the understanding that these people were being controlled by Koresh and manipulated. Even if someone along with David's teachings, let's remember that there were innocent children involved here as we go forward. The flames may be out, but a firestorm of controversy rages on after the assault on the Branch Davidian compound. Officials are starting to look for answers after doomsday in Waco. It all began Sunday, February 28th, 1993. At about 9.30 a.m., agents of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms attempted to execute an arrest and search warrants against David and the Branch Davidian compound. Some say they never should have been there in the first place and claim the ATF's application to search the premises was far below legal standards. The warrant to search the Branch Davidian compound near Waco was procured on the basis of an affidavit from an inexperienced special agent with the ATF, Davy Aguilera. The affidavit was approved by a US magistrate who is a former prosecutor. The affidavit kept secret during the siege now has been released. A review of it shows that it failed to establish probable cause. On the other hand, the ATF states, in May, 1992, ATF began an extensive investigation into David Koresh, AKA David Wayne Howell and the Branch Davidians, a cult group residing on a large and rural property near Waco, Texas. ATF's investigation centered on Koresh and the Davidians being involved in the illegal manufacture and possession of machine guns and the illegal manufacture and possession of destructive devices, including bombs and grenades. ATF's investigation showed that the group acquired 136 firearms, including assault rifles and handguns, over 700 magazines for those firearms, over 200,000 rounds of ammunition, 
110 upper and lower receivers for AR-15 M16 rifles, grenade launcher attachments for AR-15 M16 rifles, and over 400 MTM-31 rifle grenades along with black powder and other explosive chemicals. The investigation included interviews with former cult members, inspection and interview of a federal firearms dealer, review of documentation showing the purchase of large quantities of AR-15 rifles, ammunition, and inert grenades, which can be converted to live grenades, and records from interstate shippers. An ATF undercover agent became an associate member of the Davidians, although with limited access to their new compound. Sufficient evidence was gathered to allow for the issuance of federal arrest and search warrants in February, 1993 to arrest Koresh and search the compound. Considering David's past, I definitely say this is worrying. It sounds like they were stocking up for some sort of apocalypse. Of course, if you've been paying attention to the episode so far, I'm sure you can guess that this didn't go so well. And many people are divided as to where the case goes from this point. Now, because this whole siege was more than just a day long event, I was able to find a timeline from PBS online. And according to that, this is the order of the following events. Sunday, February 28th, 1993, they attempted to execute the warrant. Four ATF agents were killed and 16 wounded when gunfire at the Branch Davidian compound erupted in gunfire. Within hours, the FBI becomes the lead agency for resolving the standoff and Jeff Jamar is named the onsite commander. David Koresh discloses he's been wounded in the hip and left wrist and Michael Schroeder from the Branch Davidian is killed while he tries to return from the main building. President Clinton followed the events closely throughout the day. David Koresh put all the lives of his followers at risk here. And again, I wanna make this very abundantly clear that many of the tragic events to follow are on David's head. If we go into this with the thought that this is just a bunch of crazy people ignoring the FBI, then that would be irresponsible and dehumanizing many of these victims in the situation. But anyway, let's continue. The next day, Monday, March 1st, Clinton implicitly endorses a negotiated situation and asks to be advised if there are any change in the strategy. Larry Potts at FBI headquarters in Washington and Jamar in Waco are in command. Negotiations continue and over the course of the day, 10 children are taken out of the compound. By 5 p.m., the FBI takes control with a fully functioning command post. Koresh becomes extremely agitated when armored vehicles move closer and when his phone line is cut except for outgoing calls to the negotiators. At least twice, Koresh says suicide is not being contemplated. FBI Director William Sessions favors waiting strategy and Clinton approves this tactic. On March 2nd, Clinton agrees to deploy military vehicles for safety purposes and Koresh broadcasted his teachings over the Christian Broadcasting Network. Koresh said God had spoken to him and told him to wait. March 3rd, the FBI in a conciliatory gesture intervened to have murder charges dropped against two elderly women, Davidians who left the compound the previous day. Friday, March 5th, nine-year-old Heather Jones left the compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket on which her mother said that once the children are out, the adults would die. March 9 and 10, the electricity goes out and hours of negotiation yielded no progress. I have to give the FBI some credit here. It shows incredible patience in such a delicate situation. There's several days in April that are just marked uneventful and they truly did play a waiting game with Koresh. Koresh claimed they would come out after Passover as well, but by Wednesday, April 7th, they refused to confirm an exit date. According to PBS, Monday, April 12th, at a high-level meetings, Sessions, Hubble, and other justice and FBI officials present the tear gas plan to Reno, the newly appointed attorney general for approval. At first, she asks repeatedly, why now, why not wait? But then becomes convinced some action is needed. 
After some discussion on April 15th, it becomes pretty clear that the negotiations believe there is no further hope of getting the Davidians out through negotiation. And by April 17th, well, that's when things started to get messy. April 19th was the final day when the siege itself occurred, but I'm going to go through step-by-step and hour-by-hour, so there's little to no misunderstandings as to what happened, at least by this account. April 19th, 5.59 a.m., the Davidians were notified of imminent tear gas assault. Byron Sage, the FBI agent, advised them to come out and told the Davidians they were under arrest. Three minutes later at 6.02, two FBI combat engineering vehicles, CEVs, began inserting gas into the compound through spray nozzles attached to a boom. At 6.04 a.m., the Davidians start shooting and the FBI begins deploying Bradley vehicles to insert ferret rounds through the windows. At 6.31, the HRT hostage rescue team reports that the entire building is being gassed. At about 7 a.m., Reno and senior advisors go to the FBI situation room. At 7.30, a CEV breaches the front side of the building and the first door as it injects gas. And at 7.58 a.m., gas is inserted into the second floor of the back right corner of the building. The FBI calls for more gas from outside Waco and at 9.20 a.m., 48 more ferret rounds arrive at Houston. At around 9.30 a.m., with the supply of ferret rounds dwindling, one CEV is having mechanical troubles and high winds are blowing the gas away. Another CEV begins enlarging the opening in the middle front of the building from which the Davidians could escape, and a third CEV with a boom, but lacking a gas delivery system, breaches the rear side of the building to create openings near the gymnasium. At about 11 a.m. Washington time, Reno talks to Clinton saying everything seems to be going well as she leaves for a judicial conference in Baltimore at 11.30 a.m. The CEV without a gas delivery system breaches the backside of the compound, concentrating on the back right corner near the warehouse gymnasium. At 11.40 a.m., the last ferret rounds are delivered. At 11.45 a.m., a wall on the rear right side of the building collapses. At 12.07 p.m., the Davidians start simultaneous fires at three or more different locations within the compound. An HRT observer reports seeing a male starting a fire in the front of the building. At 12.12 p.m., Sage calls on Koresh to lead the Davidians out to safety. Nine Davidians flee the compound and are arrested. At about 12.25 p.m., the FBI hears systematic gunfire coming from the compound, leaving several agents the impression that Davidians are either killing themselves or each other. At 12.41, firefighting efforts begin. HRT agents enter tunnels to search for survivors, especially children. In the afternoon at an unspecified time, Hubble speaks to McLarty. After her appearance on ABC's television program, Nightline, Reno talks again to Clinton. Sometime in mid-morning, an apparent deviation from the approved plan begins. The plan contemplated that the building would not be dismantled until after 48 hours, not all the people had come out. However, The CEV begins knocking holes in the compound the morning of the assault. The CEV, not equipped with tear gas, knocks down a corner of the building and a portion of the roof collapsed in order to clear a path to the main tower so that the other CEV could insert gas into the area. This was undoubtedly a tragedy. It marked the end of the 51-day standoff. Those that volunteered to counsel the children were later released from the compound and later told ABC News that they were extremely afraid with resting heart rates twice as high as expected for a normal child. The kids, even the really young ones, had learned how to march and handle a gun. And to this day, despite the congressional investigation concluding that Koresh and his followers set the fire, speculation about who started it continues. 
ABC News states that conspiracy theorists are likely spurred on by government missteps during the raid and Thibodeau, one of the survivors, is still adamant the fault remains with the FBI. So who is at fault here? The FBI agent Byron Sage can't stop thinking about that siege. Texas Monthly released an article in 2018 where Sage says that he failed once he flipped the PA system's power switch to off. Many of the followers died from thermal burns and smoke inhalation, but the article explains that some appeared to have died from blunt force trauma caused by the collapsing building. And autopsies would reveal that at least 20 of them, including Koresh, had either shot themselves or been shot by other members of the sect, likely as a way to avoid a fiery death. One three-year-old boy had been stabbed in the chest, 25 of the dead were minors. It wasn't until years later when a researcher, Michael McNulty, uncovered evidence that did question the who started the fire and that finally did get answered. Inside a locker full of government evidence in Austin, he discovered a shell casing for a pyrotechnic tear gas round. This was a problem. The FBI had long denied that it had used pyrotechnic rounds during the siege, and both Attorney General Janet Reno and former FBI Director William Sessions had repeated this assertion in front of Congress. McNulty began sounding the alarm. If the government had lied about such a crucial detail, did that mean that agents had started the fire and then covered it up? In August, 1999, as such questions became impossible to ignore, the FBI admitted that in fact, a member of the HRT had fired polytechnic tear gas projectiles. Though the government maintained that the rounds did not play a role in igniting the compound because they'd been shot at a construction pit, not at the Branch Davidians building itself, and had been discharged hours before the first flames. But after so many years of doubts, the government's admission that it hadn't told the whole truth was enough for many Americans to see a full-blown conspiracy theory. That same month, a Time Magazine poll found that 61% of respondents believed that federal law enforcement had started the fire. Is this proof that the FBI started the fire? Not exactly, but it's proof that they did lie, absolutely. The FBI insisted that this was a screw up and not an intentional cover up, but I can definitely understand where that 61% of people are coming from thinking it's quite suspicious because it is. It's almost a depressing reality that you did everything that you possibly could to resolve this peacefully and then you're called a murderer, Sage says, you know, a cold-blooded murderer. Personally, I think the length of time speaks volumes about this case. Did the FBI make mistakes? Yes but it's not as if they drove up and started shooting either. This was a 51 day standoff and action needed to be taken. It's a tragedy in my opinion, and it's a lose-lose situation. No one won here. Though it does sound like the FBI acted defensively. History.com states, it's not clear who fired the first shot. They also say 28 children died in the flames, not 25, but argue that experts debate if this was really even a cult to begin with. They also state that some experts argue the government used the word cult to excuse the force it used against the Davidians in the standoff. Personally, I do think they were kind of cult-like. The children that survived have said as much. According to Dr. Perry, one of the psychiatrists that worked with the children, the children were deprived of food for punishments, sometimes as long as a full day. The boys woke up at 5.30 a.m. for marching, drilling, possibly with firearms, and children as young as 11 and 12 were David Koresh's child brides. Yet to the children, Dr. Perry said, the world inside the compound was normal. Even after their release, they described their treatment by Mr. Koresh, nearly all the children have talked about their love for him. During therapy sessions, several drew pictures with hearts under which they wrote, I love David. But Dr. Perry sees their feelings about Mr. Koresh as something else. Fear is what it was, he said in an interview here last week. They learned to substitute the word love for fear. 
The cult leader controlled everything, sex, alcohol, play, and even diet. There were a number of unusual ideas about combining fruit and vegetables in the same meal, Dr. Perry wrote. He added that when the children were first placed in the custody of the state, Child Protective Services, they frequently talked about how it was odd to have warm food. I really don't have words for how heartbreaking this is overall. Yes, it is very cult-like, but cult or not, these were people, victims, and innocent children. I don't think the Davidians being brainwashed excuses the FBI's missteps, considering journalist Darcy Steinke wrote, "'Chorus jogged every day at the same time "'on the same route before the siege.'" And so if they wanted to take him, they could have just pulled up a police car and arrested him. It was insane to come to a compound of an obviously unstable person who you know has a ton of weapons with heavily armed ATF agents. Cornering Koresh in a standoff like this, I'm not surprised it resulted in tragedy given who this man is. Some believe the government wasn't fully informed about who Koresh was and just how horrible the situation had gotten or else they never would have gone towards this raid to begin with. Regardless of what side you're on, this tragic, heartbreaking, and upsetting situation is not really something people should forget anytime soon because there were a lot of mistakes overall. However, the nine Davidians that escaped the fire still remain in Waco and meet regularly for Bible study. At least as of 2013, some believe Koresh might even return from the dead to lead them again through, well, I don't know, just, just lead them through life, I guess. The point is, is that there's just really no good ending to this. I absolutely believe they could have arrested Korsh quickly and with, without much resistance on one of those morning jogs, but it doesn't seem like the ATF or FBI had any idea what they were getting into. To say the Davidians were underestimated would be a giant understatement. The extent of the brainwashing and extreme beliefs, it's hard to imagine when you're outside of it. 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians, whether they were released in hostage negotiations or fled the fire, it's not clear who's who, were acquitted on murder charges. It was after a jury trial lasting nearly two months that five were convicted on aiding and abetting voluntary manslaughter and eight on firearms charges. Several of the Branch Davidians even filed civil suits, but those cases were ultimately thrown out when the court found that the Davidians initiated a gun battle and ATF returned fire to protect themselves. Again, there's still so much debate around this case. If the force was excessive, why calling them a cult stigmatized them and made the FBI's actions seem acceptable when they probably were not really. I hope no one walks away from this thinking that those at Waco deserve to die, even though Koresh at the very least deserved to pay for his crimes. Sociologist James Richards explains, the news media's focus on Koresh as a purported all-powerful cult leader had the effect of dehumanizing the Branch Davidians. Little effort was made in national media to depict the lives of the Branch Davidians and their children as individuals. During the siege, the general public had no way of learning about the Branch Davidians as people because FBI officials decided to withhold footage filmed inside the residence. These videotapes subsequently named Inside Mount Carmel depict young children, teenagers, and thoughtful adults who were committed to their faith. Was their faith dangerous considering it consisted of child brides, Koresh being the Messiah and abuse? Absolutely, but I also wish it didn't end this way. I don't think anyone wanted it to end this way and I wish I had a happier note to end on, but I just don't. The Waco massacre has not only sparked great debate, but it even has been a primary motivation given its anti-government, anti-FBI stance for the Oklahoma City bombing and the Montana Freeman siege. It damaged people's faith in a government meant to protect them and I can see why to a degree. People were lied to for years. I think the takeaway here is to simply remember that even people in cults are people and they still deserve to be seen as such, both by the media and the average person. 
we could all fall for a cult, for the promises, for manipulations like Koresh or Keith Rainier or other charismatic leaders in a touchy enough circumstance. It's not responsible for the deaths. Those children are dead because David Koresh had them killed. There's no question about that. Yesterday's action ended in a horrible human tragedy. If any congressional committees want to look into that, we will fully cooperate. From what I understand, that it was to the government's advantage that the compound either be demolished or destroyed or burned, uh, because the physical evidence that might have some opportunity of, of uh, disputing uh, their contentions is now destroyed. There's nothing to hide here. This was probably the most well-covered operation of its kind in the history of the country. With that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. I can't really say I hope you enjoyed it, but I did hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you wanna connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure to click on my Linktree link. It'll blow up an entire list of all of my social media and other projects that I'm involved in as well. So thank you all so much for making it to another episode. I love you all, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.